Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. Serving the community for over 75 years, Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, committed to reducing hospital-acquired infections and readmission rates. More information on Pinnacle Health's achievements in patient safety can be found at pinnaclehealth.org quality. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm WITF State Impact Pennsylvania reporter Marie Cusick. I'm sitting in today for the vacationing Scott Lamar. Well, Pennsylvania's women legislators are more likely to work across party lines, get co-sponsors for bills, and get those measures signed into law. That's according to a recent analysis from the Pennsylvania Center for Women and Politics at Chatham University. We'll be talking today to the center's director, Dana Brown, and Representative Tina Pickett, a Republican representing parts of Bradford, Sullivan, and Susquehanna counties, about what it's like to work in such a male-dominated legislature. Uh, well, good morning, Dana. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. And good morning, Representative Pickett. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Good morning. Well, Dana, let me start with you. Before we get to this report uh, that you produced, I just want to ask you, we have uh, 253 seats in the General Assembly and only 40 of, uh, we only have 40 women legislators in the House and eight in the Senate. Why do you think Pennsylvania ranks so low nationally when it comes to women's representation in politics? Well, we know from the political science research that there are several variables at play in Pennsylvania which is why we have so many or so few women serving in the legislature. And um, it's a confluence of having a, a strong party structure here in Pennsylvania that oftentimes prefers to support its incumbents. Um, and then also you have uh, the variable of uh, incumbency. We know that um, the parties are there to preserve the incumbents, but also uh, that voters uh, like their incumbents and they keep voting for them, right? And so there are just very few opportunities for newcomers at large, um, of which women are, we would consider them part of uh, that newcomer group, uh, so women and, and people of color. Um, and then we also know that there are fewer women who are running. Um, but in part, uh, that makes sense, right? So if there are very few opportunities for open seats and you know that you're going to have to challenge someone, perhaps within your own party, um, you are perhaps less likely to do that. So women are less likely to run as well. So it sounds like an uphill, uh, uphill battle for women, but you recently put together this report called Few But Mighty Women and mm -hmm. Bill Sponsorship in the Pennsylvania General Assembly. So what, uh, why did you do this report and what did you find in the analysis? Well, for, I mean, from the political science perspective, we've known now for decades, um, particularly from the 90s, that women have a little bit of a different experience in life that translate into a different experience in crafting public policy. And so we took pretty traditional political science measures um, and really just put them to the test here in Pennsylvania, right? So the question of are women more collaborative? Um, are women... Uh, able to get more co-sponsors for their bills? Are they more likely to actually cross party lines? And lastly, then, you know, how successful are they in um, moving their bills across the finish line? And so in, in your opening, as you mentioned, uh, on all of those measures, uh, women in Pennsylvania, the women legislators of Pennsylvania, tracked very nicely along the, the national trend, which is that women are indeed more likely to cross party lines, they're more likely to co-sponsor each other's bills, um, and in effect, they're also more likely to get their, their bills signed into law by the governor. Um, I should point out that the study that we did, uh, we took a look at bills um, in the 2013-2014 legislative session, not um, the most current one. Okay, and you're not saying women are better here. You're just saying that when you measure these metrics, they tend to be more effective, correct? Right. I mean, that's what, you know, in political science, that's what we do. <laughs> we have these measures. Um, that's the best way in which we can compare, um, you know, and contrast in terms of effectiveness. And so we, again, it's not a matter of better, but when you take a look at, um, again, those those measures of co-sponsorship and also that co-sponsorship across party lines, 
women, particularly you know Republican women, are extremely strong in that measure. Um, most folks um, across Pennsylvania tend to like that collaboration, and they tend to like um, you know that outcome that that women are perhaps more effective. And so, you know, we at the Pennsylvania Center for Women in Politics see this as um, sort of you know good government outcomes, if you will. Right? We all want more collaboration and, and compromise, and we see here that the women in the state legislature are doing those very things and doing it well. And Representative Pickett, I want to bring you into the conversation because you are one of these uh, few women in the General Assembly. Can you tell us a little bit about your personal story, um, why you decided to run for office? You've been in, in, in office since 2001, correct? I have, and I spent uh, nearly 30 years as a business owner. So that gave me some um, some ideas about what the public was thinking and the kinds of things that were important to them. And uh, when when she spoke about running against an incumbent, I agree, that's tough whether you're a man or a woman, that's tough. And uh, just happened to have an open seat in my area, and I decided to take a chance at it and run for it, and I actually won it. So I came in with the, the thought that I just wanted to move into government and see see what I could do to help solve some of the issues that I saw with people and to help people and uh, didn't really think about it as a, as a one-issue circumstance that I was coming in with. What do you find? What is it like uh, being a woman in the legislature? Do you, you know, what what's the sort of, um, and what do other women in the legislature tell you about how they feel? Well, you know, coming out of uh, being a, a business owner, I think I kind of felt that, um, I was in somewhat of a man's world my whole life uh, to some aspects, but in general, even though today women are, are really small business owners in large number, they are really taking on the, the business of being a small business owner. But um, I, I find that, as in all things, women tend to focus, they tend to use their time very carefully because they are in charge of so many different things in life. I mean, just about every aspect of the family depends on the woman um, and, the, and the broader family, the, the extended family, very much so. So, so they're really careful about their time, and they stay focused for that reason because they know they have, you know, many more things on their list to get done that day or that week. So I find this leads them to kind of cut to the chase or cut to the quick on a lot of things and say, what can we do to get this done? We just need to move on. We need to make this happen, and we've got lots of other issues that we need to work on. So they tend to focus in a little tighter on things, I think. One thing Dana mentioned uh, before, when we were talking ahead of the show was that sometimes, uh, anecdotally, women will say, you know, they'll they'll they they care more about the uh, you know important idea of becoming a becoming a law, and they may uh, you know pass it on to have you know a male colleague be the prime sponsor or just kind of recede into the background a bit, and 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 they don't mind so much about getting credit for things. Have you seen that, uh, Representative Pickett? I don't really see them pass it on or, or take a background seat, but I will see them uh, reach out to all, you know, all parts of the assembly, men, women, whomever, to try to bring them into their subject. Um, they'll work to bring their subject to the top. And, in fact, in a lot of cases, the way you're going to make something happen is to get leadership to believe in what you're trying to do. Uh, typically, the leadership uh, uh, group is men, and so, in effect, you have got to help convince them of the fact that what you're doing matters and it really needs to be voted on and needs to pass. So you are going to have to go into kind of a negotiation uh, with that leadership group on on getting your legislation to the top. Uh, But I don't see them giving it up. I see them hanging on to what it is they feel is important that they want to push forth. So um, you use a little bit of both of that, you know. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF. We're talking about women in politics with Dana Brown, director of the Center of the Pennsylvania Center for Women in Politics at Chatham University and State Representative Tina Pickett. And we welcome your questions and comments right now. So you can call us at 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. You can also leave a question or a comment on WITF.org or WITF's Facebook page. Again, that phone number is one 800 729 And Dana, I, I want to get back to you. Why do you think, uh, you know, aside from incumbents uh, blocking people from wanting to run, I mean, what, what other things do you see holding women back? I mean, why, why is the representation so low in Pennsylvania? Well, there are two primary categories, right? So there's the institutional challenges, and then there are some that are a bit more cultural challenges. And uh, the representatives certainly hit on one of the cultural challenges, uh, which is um, that family life-work balance. We do know that women will say to us, particularly in their, uh, if they are, if they 
our mothers and have children and are raising them, that many of them would prefer to run for office at a later time, um, perhaps after their children move out of the home. Um, but then sometimes still then, uh, you know, women are the primary caretaker of um, aging parents. And so that is something that we do here um, on that cultural level, but certainly we do see a, a bit of a generational shift with that, that uh, partners are more likely to share uh, those responsibilities now than they ever have. And so certainly I think that that one's going to change um, as our cultural roles continue to change. Um, but then on the institutional side, I'll say, you know, that incumbency, uh, the redistricting where we're creating those incumbents um, or creating open seats, those are institutional challenges, um, you know, along with the party that uh, are, are really difficult to move on. Um, and that's something that, you know, those of us who care about women in politics, we are always eager and hopeful for open seats uh, because we know that being a challenger, as the representative said, um, in any situation, male or female, is extremely difficult to overcome. Um, something to, you know, a lot of women will tell me that they're concerned about fundraising, but I must tell you that at least in all of the data that we find, women are just as strong of fundraisers as, as males are. Um, sometimes their networks may look a little different. Um, and the representative was a former you know, business owner, but in some cases women are coming from different backgrounds where they may not have as much access to those um, sort of moneyed networks. Uh, and so women may be creating those campaigns on a bit smaller donations perhaps, but they're still actually really strong fundraisers. And, and so I just would, would like to, you know, uh, d remove that myth out there that women are not strong fundraisers because that's just not what we find in the data. Um, but those are some of the reasons why we're told that women um, from women themselves, why they are not running. And Representative Pickett, I, I mean, is this something you think about a lot, like being a woman legislator, or is there something, do you reach out to other women to try to encourage them to run, or is this just kind of not an issue that people talk about a lot? Well, I do obviously recognize that we are short in numbers, women in the Assembly in Pennsylvania. Uh, we do not have nearly the number that would match our population uh, split between men and women. Yeah, I often talk to young gals, and I say, you know, bright young gals, I'll say, hey, don't don't put it out of your thinking. One of the things that, yeah, fundraising, we are as good at fundraising overall, but I'll tell you, it's a little tougher to get that bigger check for a woman sometimes. You might have to go to two or three or four different sources to equal the same amount of money that might get written for a male candidate. But this is a big state. Geographically, it's a big state. And for a woman in her family time of years, it's difficult to be out of the household that many nights a week. We're out a lot of the nights a week, maybe 150, 160 nights a week. A year, I'm sorry, a year. We are we are on the road. We are out of the household. Won't be back that night. So it makes it difficult. But I say to them, listen, as you as you go through your time period and you gather experience in life, and you're going to be better at this probably when you've gathered some more experience in life anyway. Then I think the best legislators come in after they've really had some good life experiences. Um, don't put it out of your mind because it's something that you can do and you can be very good at. Um, so the schedule's daunting. I mean, we run every other year. Every other year we're on the ballot. Every other year you're in full campaign mode. That takes a lot of time away from your family. Um, but once you've raised your family or you've gotten your family established to the point where they can really function pretty well with you doing that sort of thing, it's a really good career for a gal. It really is. Do you experience any kind of overt or subtle sexism? I know there was this, you know, big scandal a couple of years ago where a number of state officials were trading, um, you know, pornographic, inappropriate emails around on state computers. I mean, is this anything in your day-to-day -day, uh, that you come across? No, not not any more than you do anyplace else in life, really. I don't think so. Um, you know, most of our our um, members, our, our male members are, are very... Uh, very stately, very respectable, respecting of us type gentlemen. So I, I don't, I don't really experience anything of that any more than I would in any other venue that I went into, business meetings or whatever. It's, it's, it's there, but you know, it's, I don't see it as prevalent at all in the in the assembly. Well, that's good to know. Um, and Dana, you kind of also looked at the types of legislation that a women will introduce. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Do they do they tend to promote policies that are you know more family centric or, or things that women might care about more? 
Right. So we first uh, took a look at that 2013-2014 legislative session, and there were over 3,800 bills introduced in that session. And what we wanted to ask was that very question of, um, are women sponsoring different legislation than their male colleagues, regardless of political party? So we took a traditional political science measure of um, what's called uh, women's issues. So we first coded the bills, um, a question of whether they're women's issues or, or not women's issues. And then to, once they were coded as women's issue bills, we um, divided them into three different kinds of categories, um, social welfare, feminist, and anti-feminist. Um, again, very using measures that have been used for the last few decades. Um, and we did find that women legislators, regardless of political party, were indeed more likely to pick up uh, women's issue bills. And again, those are, are issues that are you know, generally promoting um, women and children. So whether it's uh, protecting victims of domestic violence or sexual assault, um, perhaps expanding family and medical leave, um, promoting gender equality, those types of things. Um, in housing, education, employment. And so we did find um, that women were more likely to introduce those bills than, than men. But I should still point out that, uh, you know, because women and men are, are quite diverse, uh, that most of the legislative topics um, overall were, you know, issues that we would expect, right, on budget, finance, taxes, et cetera. So certainly women's issues were not at the top um, uh, you know, uh, of the legislative pack, but when it, we came to looking at the differences between male and female legislators, regardless of party, uh, women were more likely to take up those quote-unquote women's issues. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by the Pinnacle Health Cardiovascular Institute's team of cardiologists, surgeons, nurses, physicians assistants, and rehabilitation specialists, delivering a broad range of traditional and highly specialized procedures. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF. I'm Marie Cusick, WITF State Impact Pennsylvania reporter, sitting in today for the vacationing Scott Lamar. And we're talking with Dana Brown, director of the Pennsylvania Center for Women and Politics at Chatham University, and State Representative Tina Pickett about women working in politics. Um, and Dana, I want to ask you, do you find, uh, you know, a lot of people, we live in a really polarized time. People are frustrated with gridlock in Washington and in Harrisburg. Do you find more women are, are interested in running, or, or what are you hearing or seeing from people? Yeah, it's an exciting time, actually, for women in politics right now. Uh, the center, after the 2016 election, um, had a real boost in interest uh, from women across the entire Commonwealth. So we run a, a ready-to-run campaign training program um, out in Pittsburgh and Philadelphia and uh, hope to be coming to South Central PA soon. And uh, immediately after the 2016 election outcome, we saw our enrollment in those campaign trainings absolutely double. I mean, it was astounding to us and shocking, um, the interest in in local government and state government uh, since the election. So um, we're sort of, um, you know, not, not sure what to do with ourselves right now <laughs> to make sure that we can accommodate all of this interest and training. So we are excited about the possibilities of having more women in government. Um, you know, obviously this is a municipal uh, election year, you know, coming up in November, and a number of our trainees are perhaps running or at least participating on a campaign. You know, our aim is to, um, you know, demystify the political process for women across the Commonwealth and let them know, you know, how to make a fundraising call or um, if you're interested in getting involved in the political party system, what that looks like in your area. And so we are just excited about the possibilities of having a more diverse and reflective government um, at the local level, state level, and and hopefully eventually we may have another female congresswoman from Pennsylvania because right now we 
we don't have any woman going to Washington, D.C. as a part of our delegation. And so it would be helpful, I think, um, in our own public interest to have a bit more diversity. That sounds like a really interesting program. Um, Representative Pickett, last question here to you. I just Did you have some kind of program like that or a mentor or somebody who helped you get into the process? I mean, how did it work for you personally? I really didn't, but I absolutely agree with everything that she is saying about um, giving women the, you know, the, the basis, the backbone of what you have to do to be able to run for office and be successful. Um, it, you can be very good at what you do, and you would make a very good um, elected person, but you, you need to know the ins and outs of how to get it done, and that is great information for people to be able to um, partake of. And I can, I'm not surprised that she's seen a, a lot more women. I, when I watch um, the... Um, the offices in our in our high schools and and in our our colleges, you see women really taking leadership roles there, uh, very strongly. So I'm not surprised that they are interested in moving on to something in an elected office. And certainly, doing something on a more local level is a good way to start with a good background. I was a county commissioner for five years, and I did that while I was still owning my business. It was just because I was regionally right there and I could do that. And um, I found it to be a great foundation and a great uh, introduction to um, government and the different issues and the different ways that you're able to maneuver your way through funding and things that you need to know how to do to accomplish what you want to do on your uh, elected in your elected um, service area. All right. Well, thank you so much to both of you. Uh, that was Dana Brown, director of the Pennsylvania Center for Women and Politics at Chatham University, and State Representative Tina Pickett. Thanks for joining us. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for all things regional. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm WITF State Impact Pennsylvania reporter Marie Cusick sitting in for the vacationing Scott Lamar today. And I'm joined by former Governor Mark Schweiker and former Department of Environmental Protection Secretary David Hess. Good morning to you both. Good morning, Marie. Good morning. And we are you're here because this week marks the 15th anniversary of the Kew Creek Mine Rescue, which, you know, attracted the eyes of the world. Uh, it was a huge story. Uh, I want to ask you both about, uh, take us back to that time. Uh, what happened? Remind us, um, Governor Schweiker, uh, of the story. Well, as we sit here on a hot summer day, I can tell you it was a hot summer day uh, with a, a completely unexpected challenge and the fact that uh, nine miners were trapped 250 feet below the surface and, you know, the 75-hour the saga of trying to locate and uh, see to it that they were okay and then ultimately bring them up was our challenge over those 75 hours uh, here at the, the end of July back in 2002. So uh, I'll just say quickly as we review and with this gentleman and colleague to my right, uh, the former secretary of the Department of Environmental Protection, Dave Hess, that we were on the job quickly. And, you know, when you stop and consider that observers of emergency response and observers of successful uh, mine rescues, knowing that there are not many because usually you've got, you know, a carbon explosion, the mine collapses and miners are crushed. We had a water incursion, which gave us an opportunity to uh, apply all that we knew in order to affect that rescue. And that's, in fact, happened. We were were nine for nine. And I know, Dave, uh, I I do believe... uh, uh, you know, our, our chances of success and then being successful were greatly enhanced by the efforts and the insights and the leadership of this gentleman to my right, Dave Hess. Governor, well, thanks very much for that. Uh, but, I, you know, we had a great team working out there that day. I mean, it began with uh, emergency calls to DEP's Deep Mine Safety Program, that there was a, a, a mine flooding uh, initially, nine miners did scramble out ahead of the water, but then nine miners in a different part of the mine were trapped. And that's the issue that we had to deal with over, you know, basically four days. And uh, it was one of those things where, you know, we brought every uh, tool and experience that our deep mine safety people had to the job. And uh, it, it's no exaggeration that. Uh, um, you know, Governor Schweiker played a key role in that because not just as a symbol. People think, well, he was just a symbol. He wasn't. He got involved with the families of the miners, which was very critical, keeping them informed and adopted a family's first policy for informing them first before the media. Uh, the media crush was intense out there. We had, at the high point, 25 satellite trucks. And as you recall, uh, that was Somerset County was also the crash site for Flight 93. 
And we had less media attention out there on that because this was a worldwide story. I also think, too, Dave, I would add that, uh, you know, in the ultimate contrast in this life and death picture that we're discussing, that, you know, United Flight 93, on, as we all know, on that fateful day in 2001, all died. And this was our opportunity, so to speak, to write the emotional ledger. And, in fact, we were successful. We all lived just the next summer. So uh, I think for a lot of us who had been uh, regularly involved in emergency response, it it was uh, a a stroke of good fortune. Uh, And we had a lot of uh, dedicated people with, with the smarts and the suggestions and the mechanical insights that helped us effect that rescue. And Dave, I know you recently authored a, your sort of personal behind-the-scenes story of what happened that week. Uh, it's called Rock, Water, Air. Um, and, and you say this is really nothing short of a miracle, what happened that week. I I describe it that way. A lot of other people describe it like the way that way. But, you know, it's it, it to me it was a miracle because I think everyone going into that knew that, that these kinds of accidents don't typically turn out well. Um, during the initial briefing, though, we briefed the governor when he came on site um, about a 1977 accident where a mine was inundated in Schuylkill County and, and one one of the several miners was found alive and rescued. So that gave us a little bit of hope. But uh, I think everyone knew the odds. But I, I tell you, n- no one flinched at that challenge in spite of the odds. You know, you had state local, federal people all working together to affect that rescue. Maria, I can, you know, the, the, the inspiration, so to speak, the, the incentive was that historical uh, account. And then the idea that the nine miners, before we started to pump the air in down there, had tapped on, on the, the air shaft pipe, which was miners co for, there's nine of us down here. Uh, come get us, so to speak. Not that that was voiced. And for us, that was sufficient incentive. And, I'll, and I would add, too, when you spent time with the families uh, who were tucked away in a rural firehouse in Sipesville, Pennsylvania, uh, you know, and the temperatures were high and emotions were running high, that you couldn't come away from that kind of interaction, uh, being face-to-face with them and and you know, holding their hands and trying to be reassuring that in, in, in saying that, you know, we were committed to doing everything we could, that that too became a matter of incentive and commitment to them, that we would do everything we could possibly do or deploy in order to find those miners and, and reunite the families. Could you just talk a little bit about the in, intense technical challenges this proposed? Because, you know, as you mentioned, Dave, they, the miners had cut into this abandoned mine that I believe wasn't mapped, and it had f- been filled with water, flooded the area. You had to drill a hole in to get them air, to keep them, uh, give them fresh air, keep them from drowning. And then you ended up drilling two separate rescue shafts um, because, and you know, like a drill bit got stuck in one of them. It just sounded like, you know, in hindsight, uh, it's it's great to see everything went so well and they were all rescued, but it just sounds like an immense technical challenge. Well, it was a technical challenge because they, they, they were about 250, 240 feet down. Uh, they thought they were further away from the old abandoned mine uh, that was right next door. Um, uh, but they turns out they weren't. So they, they mined right into it. And uh, they mined right into an abandoned mine that had 50 or 60 million gallons of water. So that shot into the mine, uh, as, as you can imagine, just like a gigantic fire hose. And as I said, nine scrambled out, nine were were, were trapped. The, the, the initial decisions within the first couple hours after the accident by our deep mine safety people at DEP really is what saved them the first time because um, our guys looked at the maps they looked at the elevations in the mine figured out where the you know the water would go where the most likely place the miners would go within the mine and they arranged actually with a local water well drilling company to bring their rig in you know this was you know one o'clock two o'clock in the morning uh, drill that first six inch hole uh, down into the mine uh, into what turned out to be an air pocket 
because as the water came in, it pushed the air into other parts of the mine and into where the, the miners were as they scrambled away from the water. So that was the, really the first time that they were rescued. Dr- that making the decision to actually locate where to drill uh, that first six-inch hole, because as the governor mentioned, that's where you pump the air in, compressed air in, to not only give them fresh air to breathe, because they weren't getting fresh oxygen, obviously, but also to keep the water away. So maintaining that air pocket was absolutely critical. And then we could go on to the other steps in the rescue process. And, Murray, keep in mind that that notion, that concept of introducing that that heated, oxygen-rich air and leading to this figurative cocoon or life-saving bubble was only speculation. It had never been ventured before. And we succeeded, and it happened here, uh, obviously in western Pennsylvania. But just an incredible... Uh, I'll give you an A and a B. A, one of the miners remarked when the drill bit came through the top of the cavern and said, you almost knocked my helmet off. So talk about precision. But then a year later, under order from DEP to wall off the breach where the, 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 the breached mine had hit Q, the Q Creek mine, took them two or three shots in the middle of the day to find that very location. So we had great fortune and, you know, uh, I'm happy to say divine providence was, you know, the, the uh, helpful as well. But, you know, one of the things, Marie, that, that people have to realize is in a mine rescue, it's it's not just showing up the day of the accident. I mean, the deep mine safety program itself is designed to make sure phones are in the mine, to make sure there's a land survey in the mine, that they know where they are at all times. And all those tools were then used in this rescue, along with the training of the miners themselves. Yeah, and I recall you were writing about how even the DEP had requires core samples from, from the coal operators so that they know exactly what kind of rocks are down there and, and all kinds of right. information. Right. We, we knew what we knew an awful lot of information, but as the governor said, I mean, hitting that first hole, hitting that air pocket the first time in the middle of the night by reproducing the land survey uh, where they are, our folks thought they were was incredible. Well, I, I want to add to the incredulity, so to speak, is the 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 often we, we we focus on the technology or the engineering and the mechanics, but taking a look at the sea level down below and making a judgment as to where those nine miners would go, the highest level without water down below, so to speak. And I say this respectfully, kind of much like rats would react, find the highest level without water. That's what they did. But our team, led by Dick Stickler and Joe Spifoni, you know, to, to pull out the maps and look at the undulation and go without any guidance, just kind of gut feel, they're probably there. And then you have to take the latitude and longitude of that and find the equivalent spot atop the surface, which we used a Lockheed Martin satellite to nail down, and that's where you drill. So so there was smarts in intellectual insight and judgments made absent technology and equipment and our crew, and I'm proudly say that, you know, part of the DEP team. You are listening to Smart Talk on WITF. We're talking about the 15th anniversary of the Q Creek Mine Rescue with former Pennsylvania Governor Mark Schweiker and former Department of Environmental Protection Secretary David Hess. We welcome your questions and comments. You can call us at 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. You can also leave a question or a comment on WITF.org or WITF's Facebook page. Again, the phone number is 1-800-729-7532. And Dave, I want to ask you, in your personal account, you talked a lot about wrangling the media. And you mentioned there were, at one point, 25 satellite trucks. You took over uh, the produce aisle of a a Giant Eagle grocery store that became your your media center. Um, You know... As it was interesting for me as somebody who's on the other side of that as a member of the press, how how helpful or unhelpful was the press? Because I know you were trying to help get messages out to the world, um, but also you didn't want them, you know, in the way. Well, it was interesting. My very first call with uh, Dick Stickler, head of our Deep Mind Safety Program, I asked him, Dick, what do you need right now? Um, and the first thing he said was, 
someone to deal with the media <laughs> because, you know, the technical stuff, you know, when something like this happens, okay, in, in coal comp- cu- country, everyone comes together. I mean, we had the people, we didn't have drill rigs big enough to drill the rescue shaft. Um, and we put out a call. We found one in West Virginia. They dropped everything and came running to Pennsylvania. But the first thing he asked was he, he needed help with, with media. And obviously, you know, this was going to be a big a big story. And um, that's for that and other reasons. I wanted to be there, and I know the governor wanted to be there too. You know, we didn't know how this was going to turn out. Uh, but the governor, uh, you know, dealt with the families uh, obviously very well. But the, the, the con- one of the concerns we had too was, you know, the media affecting the families. And that's when the governor adopted his family's first policy, that, that the families would get information first. Yeah, they, they needed to be secured and, uh, and away from the fray uh, and inquiring minds, so to speak. So we did have the Pennsylvania State Police who cordoned off the area and, you know, the, the specifically the Sipesville uh, firehouse. And, you know, uh, let me also mention that uh, while we have tremendous respect for the Fourth Estate— <laughs> And, uh, you know, we know journalists have a job to do, that there were probably no more difficult uh, question during that whole saga that we both fielded when, you know, the kind of the, the loaded question was, is this, is this really a, a, a rescue operation? Is this not a recovery operation? And, we, you know, the, we sincerely, deeply so believe, no, we have every opportunity to affect this rescue. Um, but I bring that up because the families were listening. So it made it very difficult during the live news conferences when such questions would come our way. And, and Governor, I know you have to get going in a few minutes, but just a final question for you. I mean, what was that like with the yeah. eyes of the world on you, um, yeah. questions coming every minute, when, frankly, you didn't know what was going on? Because, I mean, at a certain – you sure. had I don't know how many hours went by where you hadn't heard any taps from the miners. Yeah. Well, you know, to some extent, uh, you know, I have two reactions. You know, during my time, Marie, uh, as Dave well knows, because Dave was part of the first team on emergency response, generally, and and obviously in this in this mine rescue challenge. But you know, I, I had faced so many as the top executive in emergency response for uh, Governor Ridge. You know, uh, train derailments to tornadoes to extensive flooding and. You know, the second most expensive natural disaster to ever visit the Commonwealth in 1996 in the form of a snowstorm. So, you know, we had a lot of experience, unfortunately. And part of it is, you know, so to speak, on the, the soft skills side, it, it's, you know, when you have an opportunity um, and you, you know you're doing your best in a technological and mechanical sense, you know, you're going to stay bound and determined and focused. Uh, and, you know, part of my job, so to speak, was to inspire the same kind of outlook and determination and, and, and commitment to those families that I felt. So whether it was a flood or, in this case, uh, you know, finding nine miners, uh, kind of knew going in that, you know, that, that was part of my job. And, and then relative to the families, I mean, that was uh, so important. Uh, they, they were facing such uh, duress with a lot of anxiety. I mean, they're you know they're 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 gritty, uh, accomplished people in their own right, and they're pretty smart, and they know that you know mine and, mine accidents don't work out well. So we had to be careful. We had to kind of walk that fine line between informing them uh, and, and not patronizing them because there were no guarantees. But I I believed all along. Uh, that I know we were doing our best. So with that as kind of a uh, uh, an emotional basis, we were saying we're, we're looking for all nine. And, you know, God bless us, it all worked out. <laughs> all right, well, thank you, former Thanks, Governor Marie. Mark Schweiker. Uh, we are 
talking about the 15th anniversary of the Kew Creek Mine Rescue, and you're listening to Smart Talk on WITF. We welcome your questions and comments. You can call us at 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You can also leave a question or a comment on witf.org or on WITF's Facebook page. Again, that phone number is one 800 729 Three, two. And Dave, I want to continue with you because, you know, I really, this this personal account you wrote about the whole experience, it's just filled with all, all kinds of interesting details about what it's like to, you know, sort of do crisis management in a situation like this, you know, from, um, you know, leaving your family for days and, and running out of clean clothes at one point. Um, you know, what was it like for you? I mean, how did you get enough rest and, and kind of stay on the ball and stay sharp throughout this intense experience? Well, I mean, we we didn't get enough rest. You know, we maybe got three hours um, a night or four hours a night if we were lucky of sleep. But, you know, the one thing we kept remembering was what was it like for the guys in the mine? Because that was a mine. The mine void, as best as we could describe it or, or were familiar with it, was was only 48 inches tall, okay? Pitch black because their miner's lights had long since gone out toward the end. Um, it was it was wet. It was they had no food. They had no water. Uh, they had the constant uh, sound, almost deafening sound of compressed air being pumped in there. I mean, we we got off real easy on the surface, um, but it was a roller coaster uh, because you know we didn't know where they were, and uh, you know we were drilling two rescue shafts. Uh, the the bit broke in the one rescue shaft when we were 105 feet down, uh, a little less than halfway down, um, and um, fishing that bit out uh, was took us hours of agony, really. And you you said at one point it was actually you know you came out and misreported that the bit had been successfully removed, and then you kind of had to go back in front of the press and everybody and say, "Oops, actually." We made a mistake. Well, and and that that was a, an example of the kind of pressure our folks were under, because they 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 called. They said, you know, the bit is out of the hole. What they really saw was another piece of equipment that uh, was down there that fit on top of the bit that they pulled out. Uh, and you know, in, in those circumstances, there there wasn't anything else to do but to go out to the media again and say, look, we made a mistake. Uh, you know, first informing the families, obviously, because we had told people before that we were ready to dr- start drilling again. Um, and that was really difficult. But, you know, it had to be done. People were screaming in your face. But, you know, I I have to say the media on this, I think, overall performed uh, very responsibly. Um, and, of course, we had to contend with cell phones on, dr- on uh, drill rig operators. We're calling media and all this other kind of thing to spread stories and different things when they may not have all the perspectives. So it, you know, it, it was a difficult thing to manage, but, uh, you know, you do the best you can. And, uh, you know, fortunately, we had people like Dennis Buterball and and Betsy Mallison, Dave Latour, the governor's press office, you know, all working on this issue to get legitimate information out to the public, but at the same time, making sure that all that didn't interfere with what was actually being done. Yeah, I know you said at one point it was hard to maintain that family's first policy uh, of letting the families know first and foremost what was going on if uh, folks operating drill rigs were using their cell phones to call reporters. And- well, of course, 15 years later, you know, I, people in the same position, they'd have to deal with text, they'd have to deal with videos from, from cell phone cameras now and all this other you know, technology we didn't have 15 years ago. So it becomes more difficult. But the the objective, of course, was first to get the family's information and then inform the, from the public. Another interesting detail you had in here was that, um, you know, this occurred so close to the Flight 93 uh, crash site that at one point, actually, the Flight 93 families yes. sent a, a, an email to the uh, group of families of the minors uh, of support. I mean, what, what was that? That, like? that was a very dramatic part of this whole thing because we would obviously the governor and and our staff and me we we go over and brief the families it just happened that when the governor and I were there along with Joe Spafoni uh, representative of Salvation Army came in and said 
Could we have quiet, please? They wanted to read a message from the families involved uh, who had lost loved ones in Flight 93, a message of encouragement, because the Somerset community opened their arms to the Flight 93 families uh, when that horrible incident happened, and, and the Flight 93 families now wanted to return part of that, that, uh, that embrace. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF.org. We're talking with former DEP Secretary David Hess about the 15th anniversary of the Kew Creek Mine Rescue. And we welcome your questions and comments. You can call us at 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. You can also leave a question or a comment on WITF.org or WITF's Facebook page. Again, that phone number is 1-800-729-7532. And Dave, I want to ask you, what was it like? Um, you know, you talk, you spent a lot of time briefing the media, but you also spent a lot of time with the families. Uh, what was the mood or the sense in there? Were people, you know, hopeful? What What was that like, talking with them, praying with them, being with them? Well, it, it was a, obviously a very emotional situation. I mean, you know, we, we had to come and and tell them the latest what was going on whether it was good news or whether you know wasn't such good news and we had more challenges ahead um but again i mean this is coal country people band together in coal country and they um understand you know these sort of risks um but i tell you in spite of all the emotion um there there was never any sense of anger that, that we weren't doing enough because, frankly, you know, of the policies the governor instituted because the governor was there personally. He was talking with the families. They got to hear things first. I mean, it, it, it was those kinds of things that, that helped them deal with this and also our openness with the families right from the beginning. I mean, right at the beginning, the families, even before the governor got there, the families wanted to go down to the site, the drill site where we were actually uh, drilling the rescue shaft. And, and we said, yes, um, they obviously had to stay a little bit away from the main action, uh, but we brought groups of them down so that they could see firsthand. And, and to me, as, as I mentioned in the story, it was, it was very emotional because it was almost like they were, they were sitting slightly uphill from where the drilling was taking place. It was almost like they were reaching down you know, for their husbands or their sons or their brothers, you know, willing them to hang on. I mean, it was just a very emotional kind of time. Yeah, take us back to when um, the capsule went in and they were finally brought out of the mine. I mean, you hadn't, because you had to pump the air in to keep the water back and to keep the fresh air for them, you weren't able to communicate with them throughout this whole process. So what was it like finally at the end, describe this, um, when they were brought out? Well, we the last time we had heard from them was about 11.30 or so on Thursday. And we didn't hear from them again because we had to keep pumping air in until it was a little before 10 or so Saturday. So all that time there was that uncertainty. Are they alive yet or aren't they? Did it work? Um, when we got down to our target depth uh, with with the rescue shaft, um, or just before we got down the target depth, we had to make sure the water was pumped down low enough. And, you know, we, we had brought in gigantic pumps from New Jersey and all over the place under state police escort to pump millions of gallons of water out. But we had to lower that water level so that uh, when we broke through, it wouldn't pop that air pocket that was down there, that we thought was down there around the miners. And then you know, if we if it wasn't low enough, they would have drowned. Um, so it, it was critical. You know, when 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 that broke through, and we found that the air pressure was about the same, um, we dropped the my, the, uh, the telephone. Our guys dropped the telephone down to communicate with them. I mean, that was absolutely amazing. And what did we, they say? And we know it, but. You know, we couldn't tell the media right away. What What were their first words? Or well, their their first words were, you know, send us some chew or chewing tobacco and beer. <laughs> Obviously, we weren't going to do that. But critical uh, supplies. Yes, critical supplies to them. But um, you know, and then we had obviously 
had to confirm everything, and, and then the governor informed the families, and we informed the world. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF.org. I'm State Impact Pennsylvania, Marie Cusick, a reporter sitting in for the vacationing Scott Lamar. We're talking with former DEP Secretary uh, David Hess about the Q Creek Mine Rescue. It's the 15th anniversary this week. Dave, I want to ask you, what came out of this um, in terms of changes to law or policy? I mean, what, what have we learned from this situation? Well, we learned a lot. The governor wanted to set up an independent commission headed by um, um, a distinguished professor from Penn State, and it had uh, uh, mine worker representatives, coal mine representatives, and investigators to figure out what happened. Uh, what, what came out of that in our own DEP review of the accident was obviously the maps were wrong. And it turns out we didn't have the latest maps. Uh, the latest maps turned out to be in a in a file storage box from a former DEP mine inspector that we later traced down that did have the accurate maps in. They weren't in the DEP That's files. That's how they breached into the old mine. They, they th- again, they thought they were further away from the old mine, but okay. they but they mined right, right into it. So improvements in mapping, improvements in communications and, and mine safety, the, uh, developing new technology so that they could drill ahead to find those voids, a lot of different improvements came about. All right. Well, thank you so much to uh, all of our guests today, including former Department of Environmental Protection Secretary David Hess. I'm Marie Cusick. And on tomorrow's program, you'll hear another guest host, Valerie Pritchett of ABC 27, will be on. And you can hear today's show and previous editions of Radio Smart Talk at WITF.org slash podcast or with the WITF app. And you can also hear the entire program on tonight at 7 or on our website at WITF.org. Thanks. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support for this program comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a valuable and trusted resource for the communities we serve. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, committed to research that improves health, reduces recovery times, and brings new treatments and therapies to our area before they are available elsewhere. More information is at pinnaclehealth.org.